We return this morning to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, capital H, reference to God the Father, that appointed him, capital H, reference to God the Son. As also Moses was faithful in all his house, for this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, insomuch as he who builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, or are we, if we hold fast, the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm unto the end. Father, we understand that before us in Scripture is a simple contrast between faithful Moses and the faithful Lord Jesus. In some ways, no comparison. But in some particular ways, as the Spirit of God so moved upon the writer, there is a comparison. And the comparison and the contrast leads us, once again, to the preeminence of Jesus Christ to the superiority of Jesus Christ. And amazingly, especially after the last hour, it's all in relationship to house, God's house. So help us as we continue to appropriate the truth that we have begun to study today. And for that, we will praise you in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. We call some of the Old Testament Jewish prophets major. We call others of the Old Testament Jewish prophets minor. And of course, most of you know why we do that. The only real difference between a major one, like Isaiah, and a minor one, like Zechariah, is length of writing. Uh, Isaiah is not greater in any particular way to Zechariah, which is the continued focus of the adult education hour, other than the spirit-driven length of composition. In that same way of thinking, even Gentile believers would recognize Moses as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets in that five whole books of revelatory composition bear his name. Moses is responsible for the Pentateuch, 
or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Therefore, just in that sense alone, Gentiles would be quick to recognize Moses as the greatest. But in the Jewish mind, Moses is the greatest in a little different way, or at least with a little different sense of emphasis. In the Jewish mind, Moses is the greatest of the Jewish prophets as the one Jewish prophet whom God used to deliver the ancient nation from slavery in Egypt. And the one whom received the law of God at Sinai on behalf of the people and the one that shepherded the nation of Israel over the 40 years of wilderness wandering until bringing the next generation to the door of the land of promise. No one figure in Jewish history is more revered by the Jewish people than Moses. And so we are studying a book that is called Hebrews. And the logic is appealing to all of us, but it's particularly appealing to Hebrews or Jewish people, especially those that have professed Christ, because it brings to bear the testimony of the single greatest Old Testament prophet, Moses, in comparison and contrast to the greatest of all time, Christ Jesus. This appeal to the Hebrew people before us draws upon that comparison and contrast between Moses and the Lord Jesus in order to demonstrate for their benefit, and we would say an application for ours, the Lord's superiority and magnificence. Just as the Lord Jesus was previously contrasted with angels back in chapter 1, to demonstrate his supremacy over all creation. So now, the contrast of the Lord Jesus to Moses commends faith in Christ by nature of faithfulness to Christ. Faith and faithfulness become the logical thrust of appeal as the writer compares uh, the reality of faithful Moses with faithful Lord Jesus. As we said last time, the word wherefore, chapter 3, verse 1, brings to bear three Christological thoughts out of chapters 1 and 2. Those thoughts are uh, Christ is uh, God's ultimate messenger, uh, missionary, and mediator. He is the ultimate message of God. He is the ultimate missionary from God. And he is the ultimate mediator between God and man. And if you look for a human illustration of those very same realities, someone who is connected uniquely to the message of God, one who is uniquely appointed a missionary from God, and one who did serve as a mediator between God and man, there's nobody to find in all the earth better than Moses. 
And so Moses, as a messenger, missionary, and mediator, is now going to be compared to Jesus, the messenger, the missionary, and the mediator. So, so that you and I can understand that really, the difference is so great, there's no comparison. And so while there is a comparison here and a contrast here, it really is directed towards our understanding the faith of Christ and faith in Christ, which will be serving as the platform or foundation for appeal relative to faithfulness to Christ as the superior messenger, missionary, and mediator between God and man. The command to consider, I marked it with a highlighter in my copy of the Bible because it is the command or imperative of this section, consider Christ, and it is of the tense that helps us to see that professing believers are to consider and keep considering Christ. Uh, the imperative verb develops from a root that means to fix one's eyes upon or to gaze. We are to gaze and keep gazing upon the Lord Jesus. The practical value of this gazing, the practical value of keeping your eyes on Christ, the practical value of turning our eyes on Jesus and keeping them there is stated in the terms of Verse 6, spiritual confidence. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence, the consideration is unto our confidence and rejoicing of hope firm unto the end. The phrase, if we hold fast the confidence and Rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end confuses some people into thinking that salvation here uh, is talked about in a way that might that one might be able to lose it. And of course, you know that's not the case. The practical value of gazing on Christ or centering the mind on Christ in perpetuation is the believer's confidence. What do you lose? What do you practically lose? If indeed your eyes are not rightly fixed on Christ. Simple. You lack your confidence in Christ. You're still going to be with the Lord when you die. You don't lose your salvation because you've taken your eyes off Christ. But as a believer, if you take your eyes off Christ, you lose your confidence. And believe me when I say that confidence is a phenomenal thing to have in the Lord. So much of modern Christianity is foolishly bold or sheepishly weak. It never ceases to amaze me how that the Christians who know so little of God, know so little of his word, uh, practice so little of the truth, are often the most bold to speak of it. Why, there are people and some of my relatives that when it comes to their Christian testimony, I'd be more inclined to say, shut up already, rather than say, please share a word because they're so terribly inconsistent, if they be Christians at all, that really, when it comes to being bold about Christ, you just wish they'd keep their mouth shut. And then there are people that honestly, they walk with the Lord. They know the Lord. They're in the Lord. They feast in the Lord. And they are just sheepish 
of the weak variety to ever say a word in honor for Christ. And we like to say to them, come on already, speak up, talk up, get with it, quit sleeping. That's the kind of spiritual sloth that I prayed about this morning as we began that first hour. Because that kind of sloth corrupts our sense of Christian duty. That kind of sloth uh, 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 strengthens uh, our sinfulness. And it weakens the grace of God that he provides for us. Uh, There is something lost when God's people are slothful in spiritual things and thereby go through life without confidence. But herein is the thing to make the children of God into confident Christians, keeping our attention, keeping our focus on the Lord Jesus, will make you confident. Obedient consideration, verse 1, leads to spiritual confidence, verse 6. In other words, nothing or no one can disturb the present hope and the future rejoicing of the one whose eyes are fixed on the Lord Jesus. Now, I want to quickly remind you that the original audience addressed by these words were Jewish believers under extreme pressure to abandon their confession of Jesus Christ. If some of them did, in fact, say, that's it, I'm done with following Jesus, uh, they would have not proven that a person could lose their salvation But those particular professors would have proven that they weren't saved to begin with. The primary point that is made here, however, is that non-gazing believers lose their courage and lose their determination to be faithful. Non-gazing Christians lose courage and determination to be faithful to the Lord. Grammatically, this is understood from the fact that the word firm in verse 6 is in perfect agreement as the tense and case with the word confidence. There's absolutely no doubt about the fact that in this passage of Scripture, grammatically, the command consider, verse 1, goes with the idea of confidence. In verse 6, no doubt about that whatsoever. Here then is a summary statement of the logic that is employed here. The firm confidence that results from a godly gaze yields a life of expectation now, hope in the present tense, and future rejoicing. Again, the firm confidence resulting Uh, from a godly gaze, yields a life of expectation now and future rejoicing. Peter said, in essence, the very same thing when he says to believers, gird up the loins of your mind and hope to the end. Gird up the loins of your mind and set your uh, your expectation on the end when the grace of God is finalized in the return of Jesus Christ. The logic employed is to get us uh, to the conclusion of 
keeping our eyes on Christ for courageous and consistent walk. And the logic employed draws upon that contrast of Moses and Jesus to further demonstrate uh, the supremacy of our Lord. Moses was sent by Yahweh. We could say that Moses was the Lord's apostle. Uh, Moses was uh, uh, sent to deliver. There's a sense in, we, we, in which we could say Moses was, was uh, Israel's savior. And uh, Moses, of course, uh, was, uh, uh, was the one that not only brought the message and was sent to deliver, but he was also the one that oversaw uh, the construction of the tabernacle and the initiation of the priesthood in order that there could be a sense of mediation between God and man. And so, again, we can talk about Moses, the message from God. We can talk about Moses, the missionary from God. We can talk about Moses, the mediator between God and man. We can talk about Moses, the savior of a human sort. And yet, no way in actual comparison or equality to the message, the missionary and the ultimate mediator, which is Jesus Christ. Verses 2 to 5 tell us that Moses was, in his apostle deliverer role, also faithful and foreshadowing. Two things about Moses here that really inform your understanding about the life that he lived. And, and having studied the life that he lived, this is an amazing summary when you think about it. It says... Uh, that uh, Moses uh, was faithful, end of verse 2, as also Moses was faithful in his own house. And, uh, and it goes on to talk about the aspect of his faithfulness in his own house, or in his own sense, both in regards to uh, his response to his calling, which we could describe as a heavenly calling, and, uh, and uh, also uh, as the fact that it was foreshadowing of what would come afterwards. You see that in verse 5. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken afterward, which were come later. So Moses was not only faithful, but he was foreshadowing of the greater person and work of Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. Number one, Moses helps us understand the superior performance of Jesus Christ. Moses, we're told in verse 2, was faithful in all his house. Faithful to his house, or stewardship, if you will, oikos is the word for house, oikonomia, House law is the word translated stewardship or dispensation in the English Bible. Moses was faithful in his house. He was faithful in his stewardship. He was faithful in his dispensation. All of those truths can be supported by the statement here that we find in Hebrews 3. Moses was faithful to his stewardship as God's apostle, as God's missionary, and God's deliverer in relationship to Israel. Now, we can say, and we would quickly say, that Moses surely was not perfect 
in his faithfulness. He was not perfect in his performance of responsibility as a missionary, as messenger, as meteor. And in fact, uh, part of the reason why he only got to take Israel up to the door of the land of promise rather than taking them into the land of promise was because of his uh, unfaithfulness. And yet, the overall biblical perspective on the life of Moses is that he was faithful to his calling. That he was faithful in uh, uh, what God gave him to do while on earth, and he was faithful in foreshadowing the greater one that was to come after him. Uh, he wasn't perfect, and he also, Moses also needed a, a lot of support and help from others. That's why in the Old Testament books we read of Aaron and Joshua. In truth, we can say that Joshua completed the task that was assigned to Moses originally in taking the Jewish nation into the land of promise. And so you can see uh, quickly without uh, taking too much more time that, that Moses was, uh, was a great messenger. Moses was a great missionary. Moses was a great mediator and yet not as great as the one that he foreshadowed which of course is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ not only had a superior calling as a missionary, as a deliverer, and as the high priest of God, but alone but while all alone, without an Aaron, without a Joshua, alone, accomplished our great and full deliverance perfectly. He alone leads into the life of promise. It took Moses, Aaron, Joshua to lead Israel into the land of promise. It only takes Christ, the one, to lead into the life of promise. Moses helps us understand the superior performance of Jesus Christ. Superior as to his perfection as a person, superior as to his accomplishment as a person, and superior as to his perfection and accomplishment as one person, one man, Jesus Christ. Number two, Moses helps us understand the superior position of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of more glory than Moses. The logic here runs along this line. The Jewish household of God was built by God through Moses. Again, look at verse 2. Who was faithful to him? Christ was faithful to God the Father that appointed him, God the Son, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man, this referring to Christ, was counted worthy of more glory 
than Moses. Christ is a superior person. Christ accomplished a superior work. And thereby, Christ is in a position of superior glory to Moses. And then that's explained in a way that everybody here understands, but especially James there understands. Listen, insomuch as he who builded the house hath more honor than the house. Who's more important, the thing built or the one who builds it? James there knows it's the builder. It's the builder. Next part of the logic. For every house is builded by some man. You go down the street, you see a house. You ever say, I wonder how that got there. You ever seen a house just fall out of the heavens and land on a piece of property? Never, I have. And if you did, I'd run. <laughs> that would be pretty weird. You ever, ever seen in a spring day when the little uh, shoots of Corn are starting to pop up out of the mud. Have you ever seen the roof of a house start to pop up out of the mud? Never. Now, people sometimes say, boy, the Bible is complicated. It's hard to understand. This is about as easy as it gets right here. Every house is built by somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Every house is built by somebody. And so the logical question is, who builds the house? And the answer is, God. God is the ultimate builder of all things. He is the maker and the builder of all things that remain eternal. And then we're told, verse 5, And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant. Hang on to that word servant a minute. For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son. Hang on to the word son over his own house. So Jesus Christ not only had a superior calling as a missionary deliverer, high priest of God, but the Lord Jesus Christ is superior as a builder. And the difference between the two is worth thinking about. Because it's the base upon which the Lord Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. The Jewish household of God was built, uh, uh, built by God through Moses. But Jesus builds the household of God that belongs to himself. What Moses built, he never owned. God's the owner. What Jesus builds, he owns. He is God. He is the owner. That's the difference. The words of verse 5 of Moses as servant and the word of Lord Jesus as capital as son further clarify the difference between Moses and the Lord Jesus commending the superiority of the Lord Jesus in all things. Moses may well be called the great deliverer by the Jewish people. We all know that God is the one, however, who delivered Israel from Egypt. With a human view, we can assert that Moses built the Jewish nation. But we all know that it was God who owned the Jewish household. 
Moses oversaw the construction of the tabernacle, the house of God, the tent, the meeting place between God and man, as was heavenly designed. But there is a certain glory that is to be associated with all of those things, uh, with Moses the man, with the tabernacle, the tent that Moses uh, oversaw construction of. And, of course, the building of the Jewish nation. There is a certain glory to be rightly attached to the earthly life of Moses. We do not dismiss or deny that Moses was a glorious man of God. And it ought to put us on a thinking plane of uh, receptivity with our Jewish brethren. But the Bible is also clear that there is a greater glory, a far superior glory to be attached to Christ because he is both the human builder and the divine owner of the household of God. In fact, Paul says to the Ephesians that all the family of God are named in Jesus Christ. The Apostle John tells us, chapter 1, verse 17, Uh, uh, that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So Moses is a good illustration to help us see the superiority of the performance of Christ. Moses is a tremendous illustration to help us see the superior position of Jesus Christ as both faithful man and God. Perfect, faithful man and God. And then thirdly this morning, Moses helps us understand the superior promise in Jesus Christ. Moses led the people to the land of promise. Jesus is the door or the gateway to the life of promise or eternal life. Moses went up to the door The Lord Jesus is the door. In Christ we have it, as Peter says it, exceeding great and precious promises that by them we might become partakers of the divine nature. Israel was promised a special land. The believer has possessed a most special life in the Lord. The Jewish people got a land promise. And they got that land promise through Moses. The people of the world get a life promise. And they get that life promise from the superior Jesus Christ. The promise of Moses has to do with the land. The promise of Christ has to do with the life. Eternal life possessed right here and right now by faith in Jesus Christ. Knowing all this should compel us all the more to turn our eyes on Jesus and to keep them there. Moses is a great man, a great man of God, and worthy to be talked about. But he is in no way comparable to the Lord Jesus Christ. One more thing I have to point out to you here especially in light of 
the last hour of study together at 10 o'clock. Verse 6, but Christ has a son over his own house. Watch now. Whose house are we? That verse says that Christ is over his own house. That verse says that the house that Christ is over is built up of us. Jesus stood with his disciples at the face of the mountain where pagans worshipped Pan, as in Peter Pan. And Jesus said, Who do men say that I the Son of Man am? And the disciples said, Well, some people think you're Jeremiah or Elijah resurrected from the dead. Jesus then asked the disciples, Who do you think I am? Peter responded and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven, has helped you to come to that conclusion of my superiority and the house that I do build. In that context, Jesus then went on to say, I will build my church. May I say, I will build my house. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That whole Old Testament tent thing, that tabernacle thing, that temple thing is meant to lead us to the temple thing, which finds its ultimate expression in the person of Jesus Christ. And then he who is our temple, he who is our tent of meeting, he is our Savior, our Apostle, our missionary, our mediator. Says, ye are my house. And it's amazing to see that thing developed in the reality of the scriptures. We've got a little bit of time. I want to show you that before we close. But let me just say... Before I show you these last two scriptures, let me just say to you but that the logic that we're looking at here is why we don't sing, let's talk about Moses. And why we do sing, let's talk about Jesus. Because he's superior in every way. That said, just look with me quickly, and it's just a quick reminder, and I'll pray and we'll be done. But look at two quick scriptures uh, in which this idea of uh, the fact that we are God's house or we are God's building or we are God's temple, the way it's developed in the scripture. First uh, Corinthians 3, first, first Corinthians 3, verse 9. Paul said of himself and the, and the missionary team of laborers, First uh, Corinthians 3, 9, for we are laborers together with God. Ye, church, are God's farm, husbandry, 
God's stewardship care, agricultural stewardship. Ye are God's farm. Ye are God's building, house, temple. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if a man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be manifest for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed as by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work as to what sort it is. Jump down to verse 16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God. Ye is plural. It's not saying I am a temple of God here. We'll get to that. It's saying ye, the church, is the household of God. We are his house. We are the Lord's house. We teach our children this church doesn't exist when the people aren't here. Only the facility of the church exists here. It becomes a church when the people arrive. Because ye are his house. Know ye not that ye, plural, are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. There is a sense of corporate dwelling of the Spirit among the people of God. And then just quickly be reminded by flipping over a couple chapters to chapter 6 and verse 9 of the individual reality of that. What know ye, that's plural still, not that your body, that's singular. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, for ye are not your own. Here is the individual indwelling of God in the temple, which is in your body. And so I have a body, and we have a body. My body is this one. And my corporate body is this one. You have a body, it'd be this. And if you're a believer and a member of this church, then you're a part of this body, which is the Lord's house, local, in this place. Beautiful expressions of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. You go to a person's house, and over years and years of visitation, I've always looked at the living room setup and quickly tried to identify which chair belongs to him and always choose to never sit there. Because there's a little rule I honor, and that is my house, my chair. This is God's house. God's chair. Honor that. Submit to that. Live that way. Father, thank you for a 